Well, today, as we continue in our study of John's gospel, we come to a place where he records an especially memorable meal. Now, you might call this the next to the Last Supper, and the reason that I say that is because the next meal that is mentioned within the, gospel, uh, the Gospels is the Passover meal that Jesus and his followers shared on the night of his betrayal and his arrest. Well, this next to the Last Supper that we're going to talk about today occurred not in an upper room, but in the home of a man named Simon the leper. In preparation, I'd like you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. We'll get back to that in just a few minutes. And while you're looking in your Bibles for John chapter 12, I want to provide you with some context to help you better understand what it is that we're about ready to read. And I want to first say that it is important to point out that as we begin this 12th chapter of John's gospel, we come to a very important transition in Jesus' earthly ministry. We come to the final week that leads to the cross of Calvary. And at this point, just like the other gospel writers do, the pace of John's narrative begins to slow down because he starts to delve into the events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection. What I mean is that the first 11 chapters that we have studied in the book of John, he has covered three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, but the next eight chapters will focus on this one final week. And then in the final two chapters of John, he will tell us about the resurrection and some of the things that happened during those 40 days prior to Jesus' ascension to heaven. So you'll see this pattern followed within all of the gospel accounts. In fact, one early biblical commentator described the gospels as chronicles of Jesus' final week with increasingly longer introductions. And I want to point out also that this is a very dangerous time for Jesus and for his followers. And the, simple, the, the, the reason is quite simple. Because when Jesus brought Lazarus back to life after having been dead for four days, it cemented things in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders. They decided that Jesus had just become far too popular, and they decided that he had to be eliminated. Listen to John eleven forty seven and 48. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. In fact, it's at this, this point of their scheming that Caiaphas, the, the reigning high priest, if you will, unknowingly offers a, a very accurate prophecy in John chapter 11, verses 49 through 50, when he says this, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is far better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And of course, we know that that's what Jesus is about ready to do. He was about to die for the people, for all the people. My point is that from then on, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish religious leaders earnestly pointed or plotted, excuse me, to take Jesus' life. You'll also see in our text this morning, that Lazarus was a marked man as well. His witness was just far too powerful for the good of the people, and he had to be silenced. I point this out so that you will understand that having this meal, this meal that we're going to talk about and read about was a very brave thing for Jesus' followers to do, because the Sanhedrin had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, that they were to immediately report that to them, and failure to do so would make them more or less accessories to his crime. But despite all of this, Jesus' friends held this supper, and they held it openly. And they were prompted to do so out of their love for Jesus. They wanted to honor him for his ministry. In fact, it seems to be organized as some kind of a thank you meal. 
It was a time to thank Jesus for what he had done for Lazarus and so many others. Another thing to mention before we read this is don't confuse this meal with the one that we read about in Luke chapter 7, where it tells of a similar story, because it is not the same. If you read and you compare both accounts, you will see what I mean. For example, Luke tells of a former harlot who anointed Jesus' feet at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Well, Lazarus' sister, Mary, who does the anointing in the story we are about to read, was not a harlot. She was known as a virtuous woman. And if you will read Matthew's account, you see that another difference is, unlike the woman mentioned in Luke's gospel, Mary anointed both Jesus' feet and his head. Plus, Luke's meal happened north in Galilee, while the other one happened south in Judea. And finally, Luke chapter 7's story happened in the home of Simon the Pharisee, whereas this one happened at the home of Simon the leper. So it's two different Simons, two different meals, although many have inaccurately concluded that they were the same. Now I want you to think about this meal that was designed to honor Jesus, who was a wanted man and was being held in this, this private location. It was actually a perfect location, and the reason I say that is because Simon was a leper, who according to Mark's account, had been healed by Jesus. This would have been a great place to hide such a gathering because there is no way that the scribes and the Pharisees would come looking for Jesus there. Simon's former leprosy would have made them too worried about remaining ceremonially clean. To come to the house of a leper would leave them ceremonially unclean and unable to render their religious services within the temple. So because of Simon's former disease, Jesus had safety from his pursuers on that evening. And one last thing that comes to mind about this dinner party held in Jesus' honor, can you imagine the kind of stories that went on around that dinner table? I can almost see Simon the leper saying something like this, you guys cannot believe what it was like. I saw the scabs literally falling off of my body. My, my fingers, they, they grew back in place right before my very eyes. I reached up and my eyebrows were there. I was healed. And then perhaps Lazarus stands up and he interrupts him and he says, Simon, you know, that, that was nothing. I mean, it was great and all, but after all, I was dead. I was gone for, for four days. I went to paradise. I saw all the biggies. I saw Abraham and Moses and, and David. But I will tell you, the most amazing thing I saw is when I came back and I walked out of that tomb to see Peter's eyes. They were as big as these plates that we're eating off of. You know, somebody actually wrote a fictional account about what this dinner must have been like. He suggested that it wasn't just Simon and Lazarus who attended this dinner, but several other what he called used-to-be's. The term used-to-be is referring to someone who had been one thing, but they were saved by their past through the power of God. For example, Mary Magdalene, who used to be a harlot. Matthew Levi, who, who used to be a tax collector. And Bartimaeus, who used to be blind. And that reminds me that as followers of Christ, forgiven and cleansed by the precious blood of the Lamb, we are all used to be's, aren't we? <laughs> Romans 6. Yeah, go ahead. You can clap for that. Praise God. We are not what we were. We're far from where we want to be, but we are far from what we were. We are all a work in process, right? Romans 6, 17 through 18, the Apostle Paul writes this, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I like that. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall that night at the dinner? 
The stories told of their conversations, I think, would have been amazing to listen to because no doubt, I think each one of them tried to one-up the other by telling the story of what Christ had done for them individually. And as they did all of this competitive testimony sharing, I believe with all my heart that Jesus sat there quietly smiling from ear to ear while listening to the stories as they told them from their perspective. Because if there's one thing that we've learned throughout this study of the book of John, perspective is very important, isn't it? So after that long introduction, sorry if it went on so long, let's read our scripture from John chapter 12. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen and you can follow along behind me, behind us, all of us. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag, and he used to help himself out of what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, there's a lot that we can zero into on this account that we just read. But this morning, I want to focus on two people, just two people who are mentioned in this scripture, specifically Mary and Martha. Because I think we can learn something valuable from these two sisters. Let's talk about what their individual actions teach us at this memorable meal. And let's begin by looking at Martha. And I think that Martha's actions teach us the importance of service. I believe that we should start here because if it weren't for Martha's serving, I don't think the next to the last supper would have even taken place. That's just the way it is with acts of service. They are vitally important and yet we tend to take the wonderful people who do them for granted. Can you think of a person in your family or in this church whose consistent acts of service go unnoticed. We must be very careful not to take these kind of people for granted. The things they do and the selfless ways in which they do them are indeed vitally important. But let's get back to the story, the text. Like everyone else, Martha is a guest this night at Simon's house. But even so, I am quite certain that she was in charge of the meal. In my mind, she had been up late the night before, getting things ready so that when dawn came, she could fire up those, those ovens. That day of the celebration, the aroma of, of great-smelling food wafted through that entire house. After all, nothing was too good for Jesus. Nothing was too good for the man who had brought her brother, her dead brother, out of that tomb after four days. So I think Martha had used her best, her most favorite recipes. And when the meats and the, the breads and the casseroles and whatever else was done, she enjoyed bringing course after course to Jesus and to his men. And I'm certain that they loved it. She was doing her thing. And everybody was happy. Now, if you'll recall, Luke tells us of another time when Martha served. But do you remember the story? This time, she became upset with her sister Mary, 
who had let her do all the serving and spent time at Jesus' feet. That's when Jesus lovingly rebuked Martha for her less than good attitude. What an embarrassing time that was for both of those sisters. Well, at this dinner, things were totally different. Even though Mary, who had no doubt been helping to serve the meal, had once again wandered back to the feet of Jesus, Martha, this time, she was at peace with the whole thing. What do you think happened? I mean, circumstances had not changed, but apparently Martha had changed. She actually listened to, she actually understood Jesus' teaching, and she applied it to her life. He did not tell her to become a Mary, which is a good thing because they probably would have all starved. No, she understood that Jesus' insistence that Mary had chosen what is better did not mean that serving in the kitchen and at the table was a bad thing. She understood Jesus was saying that her harried and her unhappy, blaming attitude had to change. And it did change. And that's what the difference is this time around. And with her changed attitude, Martha's gift to Jesus of, of lovingly preparing and serving this incredible meal was literally just as fragrant of an offering as Mary's was. Martha's example serves to remind us of this simple truth. When done with the right attitude, service and, and ministry and helping other people is a vitally important thing. In fact, good works done in the name of, in a, in the, name of the Lord and in a Christ-like attitude can point people to Jesus. We must never underestimate the value of serving. Douglas Nichols was a volunteer missionary who served in India back in 1967. While he was there, he became ill. He was forced to spend several months recuperating in a government-run hospital. Doug did not speak the local language, but he did have some gospel tracts printed up in the local dialect, and he gave those, tried to give those to the doctors and the nurses and the other patients, but they all snubbed him. They all refused to take those tracks that he had reached out for them to take. One night, not too long before Nichols had been released from the hospital, he was awakened by groanings of an old man who was in a bed across the aisle. The next morning, his sense of smell told him why the man had been groaning. He needed to go to the bathroom, but he was too weak to get up and do so. The stench in the hospital ward, he said, was awful. Other patients yelled at the old man. The angry nurses moved him roughly from side to side as they tried to clean up the mess. One nurse even slapped the old man, and he just curled up into a ball, and he wept. Well, the next night, the man's groaning again woke Nichols up from his own sleep. He noticed the man trying to get up and to walk to the bathroom, but he was so weak that he kept collapsing in his bed. So Nichols got up out of the bed. He put his arms under the, other, the little man's arms and he lifted him up. Listen to his own words about this incident. He was very light due to old age and advanced tuberculosis. I carried him to the washroom, which was just a filthy small room with a hole in the floor. I stood behind him with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. Then after he finished, I picked him up, carried him back to his bed. As I laid him down, he kissed me on the cheek, smiled, and he said something I didn't understand. Well, the next morning, another patient woke Nichols up, and he handed him a steaming cup of tea. The patient motioned with his hands that he wanted to have one of those tracks that Nichols had. And as the day went on, other patients came. And they asked for those same booklets about the gospel that Doug had tried to circulate unsuccessfully before that. Nurses and doctors and interns and other patients wanted the literature. 
A few days later, an evangelist who spoke the local language visited Nichols, and he had discovered that numerous people from that hospital had put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior, as savior, as a result of those tracks. So what did it take to win those people to Christ? It wasn't his ability to speak their language. It wasn't his ability to persuade them to make a decision for Jesus, nor was it some amazingly generous, costly gift. It was a simple, compassionate act of ministering to an old man by helping him get up and go to the bathroom. That act of service, that good work, is what led people to Christ. Giving enough effort to meet this man's physical need made it possible to satisfy the spiritual needs of many people in the hospital that day. Well, Martha's act of service didn't get that kind of spotlight attention that her sister's action did that day. But as I said, it made it the most memorable meal possible. Because Martha, because of Martha, it became a meal that pointed people to Jesus for thousands of years. So never underestimate the power of selflessly serving someone else. Because it speaks volumes to people who are watching. And it is indeed a powerful thing. And we as Americans, we need to get better at serving. We like to be served. And it is time, at least for the body of Christ, that we learn how to serve. Well, the next person's actions that I want to take a look at is, of course, Mary, her sister. And Mary shows us the power of sacrifice. Let me describe the, the scene that we read about earlier. The house is full of people. The meal is being served and cleaned up afterwards. Martha is hard at work doing her thing, but not Mary, because she's back at her house. She's in her room, rummaging through her hope chest. She knows exactly what she's looking for. It's something that she has had in her possession her entire life. And it was something of great value. It was a bottle of costly perfume that was given to her at her birth. When she finds it, she comes running back to Simon's house. She enters the dining room, quietly weaves her way around the dining table, and she positions herself once more at Jesus' feet. And when you think about it, that's a place where Mary often finds herself. And perhaps inspired by something that, that she had heard Another woman do early on in Jesus' ministry, Mary, Mary quietly works open the top of that vial of perfume, a vial that had probably been sealed since she was a child. And when she gets it open, she doesn't just pour out a little, you know, just enough to get a, a sweet savor in the room, nor does she carefully measure out just enough to cover Jesus' feet and head. No, she pours out the whole thing. She pours out so much of that on Jesus' feet that she needs to mop it up with her hair. Now with that image in mind, let's consider all of Mary's sacrifice here. First, in doing this, she took the place of a slave, kneeling to wash Jesus' feet. She was symbolizing that she was giving her life to our Lord. She also undid her hair, further humbling herself and laying what the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians as a woman's glory at the feet of Jesus. And then there's this nard, this, this perfume. It was called nard. It was incredibly expensive, worth almost an entire year's wage. Imagine that. Imagine you working an entire year and what you make in that year, and that's what's valued in that bottle that she is sacrificing to Jesus. The Greek historian Herodotus listed it among the gifts sent by Cambyses to the king of Ethiopia. This was expensive, valuable stuff. It must have been Mary's most prized possession. It was a treasure kept in her dowry, which means that in giving it to Jesus, 
She literally reduced her prospects for a favorable marriage. You've got to understand that this gift was lavish. This gift was sacrificial. And John tells us how that sweet fragrance filled the entire home. Imagine the stunned silence of all those people sitting around that dinner table as they witnessed this sacrificial act taking place right before their eyes. That is until old Judas speaks up. And I have to say, my experience is, whenever something wonderful like this takes place, it seems like our adversary always makes sure that there's a complainer present. You know what I'm talking about? There always seems to be a critic present. There always seems to be a, what I call a Dougie or a Debbie Downer who's always present. Well, that's Judas. He ignores the beauty of what, of what Mary just did and he complains about her extravagance. He says the perfume could have been used, it could have been sold, and the proceeds could have been distributed to the poor. But Jesus, God in the flesh, he knew Judas's real thoughts and he defended Mary's sacrifice. Look at verse seven and eight. Jesus said, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So why did Mary do this? Did she do this because she, I think she did this because she understood something that no one else did that Jesus had come to die for our sins. She knew he was about to give his life on the cross for us. And from what I read and what I conclude out of the scripture, she was the only one that knew this. Jesus had tried to tell the others many times before, over and over again, but they were not paying attention. His disciples did not listen to him. For example, hours before on the way to Jerusalem, he told, he told his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said. I mean, how much more clear can you be than this? And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And then add this, three days later, he will rise. But the disciples weren't listening. And we'll see this clearly in the study of their conversations with Jesus in the upper room, as well as their despondent, almost unbelievable reaction to his crucifixion. So only Mary understood. And she had understood this for quite some time. So she broke that perfume over our Lord in order to show him that she understood. She knew what he was about to do for her and what she was, he was about to do for all of us. So how did she understand what the disciples did not or chose not to understand? I think the answer is clearly seen by where we find her in this text and others at the feet of Jesus. That's where she found this out. Mary was always there. She was always worshiping and listening to him teach. She was hanging on every single word he ever spoke. And the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, many of us don't know what we should, should know about the fullness of an intimate relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ because we simply don't take any time to sit at his feet. We don't study his word and allow him to teach us through his word. We don't slow down enough to let the spirit guide us into all truth as he is designed to do. And as a result, we are what the apostle Paul refers to as spiritual infants where he says in Ephesians 4.14, we are tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. 
How many deceitful schemes have you been caught up in because you're not at the foot of Jesus and you're listening to everything that the world is throwing out and you're not listening to what Christ is saying? Matthew's account tells us that Jesus said something else about Mary's actions in Matthew 26, 13. Jesus said, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And it has been preached, even today in Red Bluff, California. We remember and we are inspired by Mary's sacrifice, just as Jesus said. And speaking of that, you can't help but compare Mary's actions to Judas' reaction. I mean, for thousands of years, parents have thought of this woman and other godly women with the same name so highly that they have named their daughters Mary. But I don't know of any parent who's chosen to name their son Judas. His very name is listed in the dictionary as a synonym for treachery and for greed. I think these two contrasts are seen quite clearly in Proverbs 10:7, where it says, the name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says a good name is better than fine perfume. Well, it seems old Mary had both, right? So let me ask you this morning, who are you more like, Mary or Judas? Do you yearn to give sacrificially because of Jesus Or do you tend to criticize other people's extravagance when they give to him? The point I want to emphasize is that sacrifices given in Jesus' name are powerful. We are inspired, we are moved to a deeper commitment whenever we read testimonies of Christ followers who obey what it says in Romans 12, verse one, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Who can tell how many Christians throughout the centuries have been inspired by Mary's action to sacrifice for Jesus? I read of one like Mary, named Mary Carmichael, a young Irish woman She worked in England in the late 1800s, and she decided to answer God's call into the mission field. Twice, she was rejected for medical reasons, but eventually she found a mission agency who was willing to put her on a ship and send her also to India. When she arrived, she had a tropical fever and a temperature of 105. Some missionaries who met her didn't think she would last six months, but Amy recovered and she never, ever went back home. The young missionary soon discovered that the way to reach the Indian people was not through preaching, but through sacrifice. She wrote, if the ultimate, the hardest, cannot be asked of me, if my fellows hesitate to ask it and turn to someone else, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. So she reached out to the poorest and the youngest and the most despised of them, the babies and the children who were given to Hindu temples and who were forced to be slaves and were tortured if they ever tried to escape. She also wrote this. There were days when the sky turned black for me because of what I heard and knew was true. Sometimes it was as if I saw the Lord Jesus Christ kneeling alone as he knelt long ago under the olive trees. And the only thing that one who cared could do was to go softly and kneel down beside him so that he would not be alone in his sorrow over the little children. Amy not only felt sorrow for these children, but she was moved to action. She rescued these children. She built a home and she recruited a staff to take care of them. The ministry became known as the Donover Fellowship, and the children called its headmistress Amma, which is a Tamil word for mother. To those who profited from this enslavement, 
system that was going on in India, she was known as the white woman who steals children. Quite a title, huh? Amy Carmichael's mission trip ended 55 years later when she died at the age of 83. But during that time, she rescued over 1,000 abused, abandoned, and enslaved children. And although her stories and her prayers and her devotions filled 35 books back in Britain, not once did she return to hear the praises of her countrymen and of her supporters. To Amy, anything that called attention to herself stole attention from the God that she served. In fact, in 1919, her name was published on a British honors list. When she found out about it, she wrote back to England and asked that her name be removed. She said it troubled her, and I quote, to have an experience so different from his who was despised and rejected, not kindly offered, or not kindly honored, excuse me. Ironically, the woman who wanted no honor other than that of being Christ's servant, well, she became famous nonetheless. Isn't that the way it always works? Those who don't want it are the ones who end up getting it. Tens of thousands of readers in Britain and America were moved by her writings. And her example of, of sacrificial love has encouraged countless numbers of Christians to follow her into the mission field. That is the power of sacrifice, I point. It moves us. It challenges us to a costly commitment. It makes us believe that with Jesus' help, we can indeed make a difference in this world. And for our sense and our mind of thinking, I'm talking about Red Bluff, California. This is our world. This is what we're living in. We can make a difference in this community. So Mary gave her most prized possession. And yours might be different. It may be a comfortable home. It might be a successful self-image. It, it might be a large bank account. It might mean, God forbid, some of your free time. It could be a dozen other things. But whatever it is, the question remains, could you, would you give it in service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Is there a way you could employ it to serve him or just to show your love for him? Would you pour out your life for Jesus like Mary did? Only you can answer that question. And that's usually done by answering the call God has placed upon your life. And please don't be confused by what I just said. Not everyone is called into full-time ministry like I was and, and the staff pastors. But something I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that every Christian has a calling to do something in God's kingdom. None of, none of you are exempt. Every one of you has a calling of some sort on your life. Many of you know exactly what that is. And you're doing it. And I applaud you for that. Many others know what that is, but you've ignored it up to this point. And some of you don't know what it is because you're afraid and you've avoided trying to find out. And all of that comes out of fear of what it might cost you. So you've ignored and you haven't answered that call. But here's the truth. God has uniquely gifted you in this congregation to further the gospel message to others and to be an example to others of Christ's love. But by you not using that gift that God has given you, it has not only affected the work of God here on this earth through this local church, but equally as sad is the fact that it in dramatic fashion has negatively affected you as you have avoided it. You're lacking the contentment that can only come from having a purpose that is bigger than taking care of yourself and serving yourself. 
All because you are not walking in the service of the one who saved you or who healed you or who delivered you from an addiction or who changed you from what you were before. Mary and Martha have shown us through their actions something that we not need only to learn, but we need to live out. The power of sacrifice and the importance of service. On the surface, they don't seem like much fun. Certainly, it does not seem glamorous in any way, shape, or form. I mean, who wants to sacrifice? And I mean, who really wants to serve? But that's why you see the word power before the word sacrifice. And that's why you see the word importance before the word service. Because it is powerful and it is important when you do either. But you'll never find out until you do like Nike says, just do it. Listen, if you don't feel victorious in your Christian walk today, you need to sacrifice something and you need to serve in some way. If you are lacking joy, you need to sacrifice something and you need to serve in some way. If you're feeling like you lack purpose, you need to sacrifice something and you need to serve in some way. And you will, if you find yourself constantly complaining about how everybody else does ministry and that it's not what you would expect and not right for you, you, my friend, need to sacrifice something and serve in some way and make it better. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little hyped up this morning. You can get mad at me if you want, but this is a word you need to hear, church. And I'm never going to pull punches with you. You know that. This is a word for us today here in Red Bluff, California. And we need to listen to it. We need to listen to it. The only way that we are going to be effective in the way that we operate as a church, as the body of Christ, as we are called is if everyone plays a part. It's called a body for a reason. Because every part goes for the body to function properly. And when someone doesn't do their part, the overall body suffers. Martha and Mary have shown us the beauty of what can happen whenever you sacrifice something or whenever you serve in some way. And it does not matter how old you are. It does not matter how young you are. You play a part in this body. But when you don't play your part, the whole body suffers. What I mean is when you don't play your part, we cannot possibly run on all eight cylinders. It means that we are lacking, and therefore people are not being reached, and they're not being discipled for Jesus Christ. And that's something that should be on the back of every one of our minds as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us from what we once were to what we are today. Liz, will you come forward and help me to close this down? Throughout this service, the Holy Spirit has reminded every one of you in this place or watching online something very important. He's revealing in your heart to you whether or not there is any sacrificing or serving going on in your Christian journey. That's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, to awaken you to the truth and to draw you into action. This morning, I want to pray over you, all of us who make up this church, this body of believers that we call High Point Assembly. I am going to pray that every one of you will grasp how essential sacrifice and serving is in your personal Christian walk and how important it is to this body of believers. I want you to think about the many ways that God has led you to sacrifice and serve, but maybe you've come to realize this morning that you've been pretty much ignoring that. You just don't want to make the sacrifice. You just don't want to offer up any of your time. Well, let me share something with you. 
We, we talk about giving to the Lord here at this church. Usually once a year, I have a sermon in January and we talk about you know, how important giving is and how important it is to your Christian walk and how when people finally can start giving some of their hard-earned money away for the kingdom of God, that's when they really understand the truth of the gospel message. But when, when you give of your finances to the work of the Lord, there's a supernatural thing that occurs. It's when God multiplies what you have left over, and no matter what you give, you always have enough to take care of all of your own personal needs. When there was great fear before, God shows you that there was no need for that fear. And anyone who is a giver, in the truest sense of the word, they understand this, because we've lived it out. And to not give is not even a consideration for those of us who have lived this out. Why? Because when you sacrifice, some of your hard-earned money and give it to the cause of Jesus Christ, you've seen this supernatural occurrence in your life over and over and over again. Well, can I just say that the same thing happens when you sacrifice and when you serve. God supernaturally gives back to you those things that you sacrifice in many different ways. And he also multiplies the time that you give in serving right back to you. What do I mean? I mean that, that somehow you get everything done that you need to get done, even though you have taken some of your time to serve in God's kingdom. What I'm trying to say is when I hear the, the padded answer, I don't have enough time, that doesn't even register in God's book. It's, it's, it's a... It's a makes no sense, makes no sense to the Lord because he will always grant you the time that you need to take care of yourself and your family and to serve as well. It's just another way that he operates supernaturally in your and my life. Guess what I'm trying to get through to everyone this morning is sometimes the greatest sacrifice you can offer God is that of your time. And I'm going to pray that through the direction of the Holy Spirit, that he will release your fears, he will release those excuses that have prevented you from experiencing the power that comes through your sacrifice and the importance that comes through your serving. The time is short, ladies and gentlemen. The harvest field of lost souls in Red Bluff is vast. And we all need to get on board. And we all need to play a part in this body of believers. We will be more effective if we do that in bringing in the lost, seeing them receive salvation, and watching them as they grow into productive members of this body. There is no greater calling on any of our lives than this. Maybe you're here watching online and you've never asked Jesus into your life. You've never received his gift of salvation. You've never allowed him lordship. Well, during this time of prayer, you can pray as well. You can offer up a prayer of, of brief and confession, belief and confession, excuse me. The Bible says to receive salvation, you must believe and you must confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God that he is the only way to the Father, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, and his shed blood, your sin can be washed away. You can become white as snow. You can have your slate cleaned. All you have to do is ask. So when you pray, while I'm praying, just pray a simple prayer of acknowledging who Christ is, that you believe he came to die on your behalf, and that you want to receive the salvation that only he can give you. Confess your sin. Ask for his forgiveness. The Bible says he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you'll become a new creation. So whether you need to pray today about sacrificing and serving or whether you need to receive salvation this morning, will you earnestly pray along with me as I pray for you? Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is amazing. It builds us up, it encourages us, and at times, it hurts. When we know that we're falling short of what you would have of us as men and women of God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would impress upon every one of these people in this place today the importance of sacrifice and the importance of serving.
And if we can honestly say we're neither doing both, that you would show us how to begin. That we would take those baby steps and say, how can I be used? How can I serve? And get plugged in and become a part of what we're trying to do in this community. I rebuke the voice in our head that tells us we don't have the time, we don't have the ability, because that's just not true. Because God, you have gifted each one of us to do things that the other cannot. There are people in this building, God, who can reach people that I could never reach. There are people in this building who are more gifted than the pastoral staff here. And yet we sit on our hands and we stay in the shadows and we don't ever actively get involved. And so, Father, I pray that you would strike something within us, spark something within us, Lord, to realize that the time is short. You've given us these abilities for a purpose and for a reason, and that is to further your kingdom. God, let us not be satisfied in our own salvation, that we're saved and that's all that matters. Open our minds, our eyes to what's going on around us and to those people who are deeply broken and who need what we've got through you, and that we would care enough to serve in ways that when they come through these doors or that when we have conversations with them, you will use us in their journey. And then they too will understand sacrifice and serving to those outside of this place as well. And Lord, I pray for those who are watching online or here who don't know you as Lord and Savior. And I pray that they'll have the courage to pray a simple prayer of belief and confession, acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God, asking for forgiveness of your sin, and asking Jesus to come into your life. It's a simple prayer, but if you pray it with sincerity, Father, we know when they pray it with sincerity that you touch them, you do cleanse them. Then I pray that you help us as a church to come alongside of them and help them in their Christian journey through our discipleship classes and through just being a part of this body of believers. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that your spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that they would be conversations that would build up and not tear down. I pray that we would be bright lights that would shine in the dark darkness of this world, so much so that people would ask us what it is about us that's different, and then you would open the door for us to share your goodness. But Father, I also pray as we go our way that this message never leaves our heart and our mind. Father, let not the words that were spoken today disappear by mid-afternoon, but Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring them to our remembrance moment by moment by moment by moment until we choose to learn, to sacrifice, and to serve. Because Father, when we do that, our faith, our Christian walk goes to an entirely different level, a level where we all need to be. So I pray that that would be the outcome of this message today. Pray until we come together again that you would keep us safe, keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us, keep us safe from COVID or any other sickness or disease that might come our way till we come back together again and we worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for your presence, your sweet presence, Holy Spirit. Touch and move in our hearts and lives, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here.